Welcome to the Torcana Real Estate Investment Show with Colin Murphy, a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about building a rental property portfolio with strong cash flow and stable tenants. Here's your host, Colin Murphy. Hey, everybody, this is Colin Murphy, and welcome to Torcana Podcast 36. So I have a very special guest with me this week that many of you already know. It's my long-term business partner, David Shaw, and I'm delighted that we finally managed to set aside an hour to talk about both his story and our story as business partners, because David and I have been working together full-time for 12 or 13 years ago. We've literally been talking on the phone every day, almost for 12 or 13 years, and it's, it's been a great business relationship, and we're good friends. So David, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Colin. Thanks. It's uh, it's good to finally be here. I think you've done a great job so far getting us to this point. So yeah, I look forward to doing the podcast. Awesome. So for people that don't really know you, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in real estate. That's really the big question. I love this question in other podcasts where people uh, explain how it is that they you know bound themselves in this crazy business of ours. So I had some uh, foundation in it in that after college, I, where I studied construction technology, I moved to the United States from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I briefly worked, I spent some time in Boston. I worked for an architect over there. I spent a few years uh, with a small contractor in San Francisco. And then I moved to New York um, for a girl, the normal, the normal story, mm-hmm. uh, where I worked as an estimator and a project manager for a mid-sized uh, commercial general contractor. And that's kind of where I learned my trade. I kind of learned where to be effective and confident when it came to building projects. And So, so when was this? Are we talking about the 90s, the early 90s? When, when was this that you were in? Yeah, this is, this, 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 is, this is the early and mid-90s. Okay. Cool. And after that? Well, um, I worked as a construction project manager for a number of years. And, you know, while I enjoyed it, 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 it got repetitive, it got a little bit boring. And um, I kind of... You know, I was I was getting a little bit antsy. So um, my mom became ill um, around the year 2000. So I wanted to move back to Ireland and Ireland was doing well at that time. And just that whole thing prompted me to, to move home. And, um, you know, I, I, I took that opportunity to move to Ireland and kind of restart and, you know, rethink what my life was going to look like. And it's when I moved back to Ireland, I kind of really started to think like an investor, uh, etc. Okay. All right. And that was what around the early 2000 when Ireland was in a a huge boom, an economic boom, a financial boom, a construction boom. So did you get involved in Irish real estate or did you do something else uh, for a few years while that craziness was happening? No, that's right. Uh, Ireland was booming and it made it kind of easier for me to move back to to Ireland from, from the United States, having developed my career there. Ireland moves at a very different pace and there's a lot of other considerations while working in Ireland. So um, while I dabbled in um, project management in Ireland for a while um, and I dabbled in a number of small uh, entrepreneurial uh, businesses, um, it was there that I kind of realized that real estate was was what I wanted to do. I'd made some investments at this point in time. I'd made some small investments um, in the United States and in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it was in those few years after moving back to Ireland while I was doing some project management and running some small businesses that I really started to think about real estate, think about the power of real estate. And it's then I kind of made a pact with myself. I, was, I was decided and made a very clear decision that I was going to become a professional real estate investor and I threw myself wholeheartedly into it I, I decided it was it was I didn't stumble into real estate investing I decided to do it um, and in that decision you know lesson number one um, I very quickly understood that underwriting the numbers and looking at real estate purely as an investor not as a speculator mm-hmm. not trying to ride uh, rising markets but looking at it in the cold light of, of dawn if you will um, that, that, that this was a numbers game so yep. um, I also understood the importance of action and ignoring procrastination so at that point I decided I was going to teach myself real estate and I was going to go out there and I was going to learn real estate. Um, whatever it took, I was going to put myself in a position where um, where I was going to be learning every single day to achieve my goal of becoming a full-time 
real mm-hmm. estate investor uh, and yeah. professional. Yeah, that sounds like pretty close to the time where we met because I was lucky that I'd kind of fallen into real estate very quickly after I graduated university and and did a master's degree in marketing. I worked for a newspaper for about a year and a half and then I went into a company in London which did real estate magazines and real estate exhibitions during the boom years, so like 2003 to 2005. And anybody that can remember uh, you know, Ireland or the United Kingdom or the US during those years, uh, real estate business was just crazy. It was very hard not to make money in real estate. So I was traveling all over the world talking with with realtors and construction agents and currency people and, and lenders and salespeople. And I got a really great insight into how crazy business worked. And I was kind of tapped by uh, a company, a, a successful British company to, to set up their, their Dublin office. And uh, that's really how we met, right, David? I, I get asked, asked that a lot. You probably do too. So do you want to tell people how we finally met each other? I think it was in Ireland around, what, 2000 and, late 2006, early 2007? Yeah, I get asked that a lot as well, Colin. Um, yeah, it was, it was, they were heady times right then, for sure. Everybody um, who could fog a mirror, as they say, were getting loans. And that's on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, and it was also uh, coincided with the time and that I was uh, transitioning into becoming a full-time real estate investor. Mm-hmm. So you're right. You, you, the company that you were were at that point working for um, had a very, very sophisticated marketing platform. Uh, I was um, a subscriber to your newsletters. I was a subscriber to all of the information um, that you guys uh, put out there, including uh, a monthly magazine, which is extremely sophisticated for its age. Mm. And I noticed one thing. I noticed that whenever the company that you were at that time uh, working for, I noticed whenever they released new inventory, that there was always that the choice properties were always gone. The lakefront property gone, the corner units gone, the larger units gone. And so it, it, it became obvious to me that, wow, there's a, there's an office here in Dublin. I'm going to give those guys a call because I want to buy a couple of their off plan properties, but I want to get them, I want to get them on the lake. I want to get them on the top floor. I want to get them the corner lot. So sure. with that being said, if you recall, I, uh, I put a, a call into your office at that time and said, hey, listen, I'd like to talk to you about you know investing. And we sat down in Dublin. We had a cup of coffee. It was a very interesting conversation. I think it was at least three to four hours later, we were talking about my coming to work for you. And um, because I had explained to you that my my passion was real estate, that I was really trying to learn real estate. And, um, you know, while uh, I was meeting you to discuss um, my investing in one or two of your projects, the actual real motivation for me was that I wanted to meet this fledgling company in Ireland and, and, and see, if I could, uh, see if I could position myself there and where I could learn. And I thought that you provided a, an excellent platform for me to learn. Yeah, it worked out really well at the time. We, I was delighted to bring you on board on, on the team. I needed somebody with your attitude, your experience. I was pretty young at the time, and I remember it well. I mean, we had a good year, maybe a good year and a half in, in 2007. And then in late 2007, early 2008, things started to change, right? The market had just started to shake on the U.S. side of the Atlantic. Uh, it hadn't quite come to Europe yet, but it, it was coming. But, you're, you know, the, the canary in the coal mine was in the U.S. At, at that time. And that was the time, if I remember correctly, where you started telling me, say, Colin, this, this business model that you're doing, it might look okay now, but I think things are going to change dramatically. We should probably start looking at the U.S., which is actually going downhill at the time. So talk, talk to us a little bit about more about your mindset at that time and, and if you can remember what kind of pushed you to, to push me to – you know, to look at something else to what we were doing. Well, Colin, I, I always saw myself as a value buyer uh, and also as an opportunity buyer. So whilst the products that you were working on um, were largely undervalued properties, properties in these city center locations, in these new European capitals uh, that had just opened up to the European Union and the euro and lower interest rates, and it was a, a really tremendous opportunity to pick up properties and 
Warsaw and um, Czechoslovakia and, and, and Romania and, and even Germany for that matter, those sure. low interest rates at that time. Um, the, so, so the reason why I was attracted to your company at that time was because it was a value opportunity. But as I, I, had, I personally owned a vacation home in, um, in, in, in the Orlando market and I ran it as a business. And I saw what was going on there, and I'd had a couple of um, I'd had a couple of conversations with my realtor at that time, and you know she sent me over a contract. Well, I remember distinctly one Friday night she sent me over a contract for this new build project, um, just off International Drive in Orlando, and mm-hmm. the numbers just didn't pencil out. I remember sitting there on a Friday night, and I was like, "This contract makes no sense." this house makes no sense there's 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 something there's something very wrong um, with this contract so and um, not only did I not sign that contract but I, I called my realtor the following Monday morning and I said hey listen you know I'd like to sell uh, the property that I have here and um, and I'd like you to discount it from the regular market right now like discount it by 20 grand I'll give you uh, you know a, a, an additional bonus but I, I want you to I want you to sell this home right now because I just felt it was very very much the top of the market but with that being said I was also aware uh, and acutely aware that Europeans had not latched onto this at this point in time either. Uh, European market was seemed to be working in a different to a different tune. You know, at this point in time, the European market was still very buoyant. Uh, and I, I sat there and I watched in two thousand and late two thousand and five, two thousand and six, and certainly by two thousand and seven. Um, I was very aware that there was something monumental happening in the market in the United States. The currency had plunged, Colin. Um, if you remember, the mm-hmm. U.S. dollar became uh, a, a big buy opportunity. Mm-hmm. The prices of real estate were falling fairly precipitously in the United States, and they hadn't done so. It was still very buoyant in Europe, very buoyant in England, very buoyant in Ireland. Um, and the yields, as the prices on these homes were were, were falling, the, the the yields, the rental yields that these homes were throwing off were just becoming higher and higher and higher. So it was inevitable that somebody who thought like an investor, like I did, and who only looked at the numbers, that these numbers were fundamentally better in 2008 than they were in 2005. So yeah, as a numbers guy... It started getting I, crazy in 2008. That's The warning signs were there in 2006 and seven, but in March 2008, you had Bear Stearns falling. In September 2008, you had Lehman Brothers falling, which really caused everything to go nuts. And But we were, yeah, we were in there before that. I think we're in there early 2008, late 2007. We were looking at the US and I think we... Uh, yeah, we made that trip to Orlando, I think probably in April or May 2008 to, to look at this stuff that you'd already been doing in Orlando and, and to look at what way the, the markets were, were changing and how distressed sellers were, were suddenly appearing all over the place. Yeah, that's right. I remember trying to, at that time, I remember we were trying to connect with good realtors. We were trying to understand what foreclosures were. We were trying to understand, because not even the banks understood how to um, short sale properties at this point in time. If you well remember, that was um, very much Wild West uh, real estate in 2008, 2009. It took a while for the banks and the, the market itself to understand what was fully going on. But what we did understand, if you remember, this correctly. What we did understand was that there was a lot of this large inventory of condominiums um, and these condo converted units um, throughout the state of Florida um, that couldn't be sold. They were they they were not they were not financeable. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac Fannie Mac had uh, taken financing away from these properties, so mm-hmm. it was a great opportunity for cash buyers. And as you know, the, the the New York guys hadn't got their act together to start working on this product in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven. So it took a it, it, you know it took cash to get these deals done, and Europeans were. We're very happy to take advantage of this of this opportunity back then, as you know. Yeah, and, and nobody was doing it in bulk. These these condo conversions, which is where a, a builder buys an apartment community, which is like one large deed and then converts it into lots of tiny deeds with condos that they're going to sell individually after they've been updated. And the business market just fell apart because financing was pulled and builders still had these large loans to service. And so they tenanted a lot of them 
to keep their their overheads ticking away and and really there wasn't very many people coming to them saying i'll, I'll sell these condos for you one by one there was no REITs there was no hedge funds there's no pension funds it wasn't the, there was no sophisticated multi-million dollar product that was available to buy those condos so it was it was an opportunity that we were one of the first in there it was very much low hanging fruit and it was a lot of good money to be made and we took advantage of it for a few years but i think well, by 2014, maybe even 2013, the low-hanging fruit was gone and just wasn't very viable business model anymore, right? That's right. That's right. It became very obvious that um, by 2013, 2014, all the big hedge funds had started to operate at this point. They were, they were, you know, there was still a little space for deals that were slightly too big for the small guys and too small, uh, too small for the big guys, mm. if you will. There were still some some deals. There were still some good realtors bringing us opportunities. Um, but by and large, now we we realised that the writing was on the wall in about 2014. You know, if you if you were chasing yield at this point in time, um, it was time for us to move over to um, the single family market, and that was very scary at that time because there was a there was a lot of learning to do. Um, you, know, you have to teach yourself the foreclosure market. You have to actually go out there and teach yourself buying and renovating these homes, and, and it's a lot harder to sell and market a single home than it is to sell and market fifty condos yeah. and to ready, willing, and able buyers. You remember that well as well. So, um, yeah, there was, that, that was a 2013, 2014. I. I, I Thank the Lord for um, all of the educational platforms that were showing up on the internet by then, podcasts and informational newsletters. But this was this was a time of uh, a lot of education for you and I, and I remember that. I remember that well. I remember knowing that we were going into that big transition, and uh, we knew on the other side of the transition it would all be worthwhile. But it was a, it was a big step. It was a big step. It was it was like a total reinvention of our business. We were determined that we were going to stay in real estate, that we were going to work together. Uh, but yeah, it was a whole different thing with, with the financing, with the marketing, it, it, with the, the buyers and the sellers. It was a very different transition. And you're right, there was a lot of information online to teach us about it that wasn't there. And we were already obviously on the ground and, and had made some money and were in a position to get started. But it's it's scary buying those first couple of houses and, and renting yeah, well. one or two houses. Well. Like if it doesn't work, you're, you're in trouble, right? Well, that's right. Well, you're going to make mistakes. You, you're definitely going to make mistakes, but the most uh, most difficult mistakes you're ever going to absorb are making mistakes on your very first deal. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, they are. I mean, we, we did fine. Uh, you know, we didn't lose money in our first deal. And if anybody ever does lose money on their first deal, it's not unusual. Don't worry about it. Don't let it stop you from doing your, your second deal. Just have your rainy day money set aside to cover your own family expenses. But don't don't let something stop you if you know that it can work. So, yeah, we made a little bit of money in the first deal and that gave us the courage to do a second deal and a third deal. And and suddenly you've you've got a business going again. So, We've done a lot of houses since then. So, I mean, how does it feel to you, David, to have physically bought and renovated several hundred houses in the Tampa market? I mean, a lot of people get nervous buying one or two. How does it feel when you've when you've done a few hundred? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question because you know, I'm quite proud of what we've achieved in that respect. In you know, learning and you know, buying that very first house and the big move and all of the anxiety involved in in buying your first house and you know, putting that through uh, through the system and in creating your systems. Yeah. Uh, buying your second house, buying your third house, buying your fourth house. But yeah, as time goes on. And, you know, you start moving into 20 houses, you've done 30 houses and so on and so forth. I, I still learn. I still learn every single day. I'm, con I'm confronted with problems I've never seen before. I'm confronted with problems that I didn't imagine that were possible. And I've, I will continue to be confronted by uh, problems and issues. And I think that that's the real key thing. Um, you need to have a certain backbone. You need to have a certain resilience. Whereas before, I think two to three years ago, uh, four years ago, I would have been quite stressed about this this issue showing up or that issue. Now I am I am a, a problem solver. That that's you have to be if you're going to be in the real estate business in any way, shape, or form. You have to know that everything possible is going to go wrong, and that your uh, skill set is going to be problem solving. But once 
you start doing that and, and you start, you know, you build a 100 homes, 200 homes, 300 homes, you just become better at problem solving as well. You become better at the, you know, taking on the emotional hits of it all right. Right? because it can be emotional. So I think the real key thing is that you know that you're going to get better, know that you're, you're, you're physically and mentally going to be able to get you know, to, to, to improve how it is that you digest and react to things going wrong. And that's the real advice I would give to anybody. You ask me, you know, what, how do you feel after doing a couple of hundred homes? That's it. You, you're still going to have problems that you've never seen before. Just become a real problem solver and don't let it stop you. Yeah, I like that. Don't let it stop you. I agree that resilience is a very underrated trait that people should try and develop. And yeah, we used to get so stressed out about problems, about small stuff. A window's not working, a roof bill was expensive, a landscaping bill was there, a septic tank appeared out of nowhere, there was something weird going on with the floor. I mean, you can get very stressed out renovating at home, and I'm sure a lot of people have. And But it, the stress doesn't multiply by 50 if you're doing 50 homes at all. I mean, you need to learn how to grow and scale and a lot about a lot of it is is just accumulating the resources designing the systems mapping out your business and obviously finding out who's who are good people to work with and and you kind of rise above it after a while and you're just kind of managing the pieces underneath you you're not you're not in the weeds when you're in the weeds actually getting rolling up your sleeves and getting involved in renovations is very hard work uh it's very stressful it's it's very slow obviously and you know, it's funny that we used to be involved in, in so many different markets and so many different property types, and we're learning about all, all sorts of different cities and subdivisions. But it's ironically, we only started becoming, you know, financially successful when we identified a pretty niche product and, and learned it well, right? Would you, would you agree? Yeah, Colin, that's exactly right. Um, you know, once you overcome your fear, and I think that that's a huge component of success. Um, anybody who has ever owned, ran, uh, and enjoyed the benefits of a successful company have had to go through the the, the gates of fear. And um, once you get through that initial fearful challenge, um, you have to learn to grow and scale. And, 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 and that's, that's, that's a really hard thing to do because most people, the, you know, the, 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 the advice that most people get is, you know, disperse um, where it is that you work, work in numerous or several markets. But I, I would go quite the opposite. We only ever really, really became successful when we learned to buy and renovate in an extremely small box. Like I live in Tampa, you live in Tampa. We don't work all over Tampa. We work in a three mile by 10 mile box and that's it. And because we work in such a small box, most of our projects are two to three minutes away from each other. It also allows us to truly understand the mechanics of what it is that we buy. We only buy a very particular type of house. Anybody offers us a house that doesn't fit what exactly what it is that we buy, we don't buy it. And most of the real estate investors that I've come across over the years that haven't been quite successful or haven't um, achieved um, a, a scalable business are the people who are in their attempts to diversify are having to learn new markets and having to learn and introduce themselves to new contractors, new property managers, new this and new that. That's the hardest thing you can do in business and having to constantly relearn something in a new market, in a new place, to me is a, a very challenging thing to do. So you and I only really became successful when we got deep in a very, very small pond. You'd agree with that, right? Yeah, it, it's, it sounds counterintuitive, but yes, that's, that's how it worked and, and that's how it is. And that's not to say that, you know, the money you earn shouldn't be diversified, but if you want to become successful in an endeavor, it usually makes sense to have a niche and to go deep rather than to go wide. And, and that's what we've been doing in, in Tampa and it's, it's worked out very well. And if you're uh, somebody who's thinking about starting a, a property rehabbing business or a wholesaling business, you should look at it through that same lens. 
So, and that's great advice. That's great advice. And stay very, very local. Identify a particular product, be that a concrete block home or be that a you know new build home or whatever, whatever it is that works for you. But identify something, learn it well, and do not get out of your lane because you're going to have in real estate. You well know we have quote unquote deals thrown at us all day, every day from every angle that we can think about um, and our main roles say, no, nope, that doesn't fit our model. That doesn't fit our model. That doesn't fit our model. So identifying your model, identifying what you're good at and then go deep in that market. I, I cannot stress enough that that to me is the real difference between success and failure in real estate. Yeah, no, it's very easy to get distracted by by shiny lights. And it's it's literally like shining a little pen light in front of a cat and moving it around the floor and they just go chasing after it. And it can feel like that if you're sent, oh, here's a 70-year-old house in, in this part of Tampa. Here's a brand new condo over here. And here's a 10 apartments over here. I mean, you can literally spend your week chasing your tail, looking at deals and having to analyze every one of them from scratch. But if you're pretty well-defined in what you're looking for, and more importantly, if wholesalers and realtors and, and other and other people and virtual assistants and whoever else are all trained to filter the right kind of product to you, you, you can really do very well and, and really maximize your time. And, and that's a lesson we're still learning. It's a lesson that I wouldn't have been very good at at all, even a couple of years ago, but it's, it's something that's made a big difference in the last you know two, three years. And I know it's made a difference to you as well, because you used to be clocking up a, a horrendous amount of miles driving up and down the 19 highway looking at every tiny little thing getting in, intimately involved in a million different decisions on, on dozens of houses but you've uh, you've gotten a lot better at, at doing that because it, it it wouldn't have ended well if, if you kept going at that kind of pace <laughs> i'd have been finding another business partner in a couple <laughs> of years because you've had a heart attack but thankfully we've we've gotten a little smarter with our with our time and energy and, and resources right yeah, I think it's very important to understand that um, diversification has got an upside and a downside. And you know, even the word, like you said, I think you you offered some great advice there. Is diversify the money that you make, uh, but in terms of the product that you're producing, um, go local, stay local. Don't be chasing your tail around town because if you remember, Colin, most of the most of the mistakes I think that you and I have made have been when we stepped out of our lane and i'm not even talking about you know going from you know single family to multifamily or i'm talking about literally going the wrong side of the road literally i'm talking about we bought a a, a house type that we don't normally buy or we buy over a neighborhood that we're not used to buying in whenever we do that invariably we make a mistake and we don't if you want to limit the mistakes you're going to make in this career limit just limit the horizon of what it is that you're doing. Uh, an, an old friend of mine whom I, whom I used to know, I'm very jealous of his lifestyle here in Florida. He was retired. He was always on vacation, traveling the world. And um, I remember having you know, numerous conversations with him. And, and he was in the bottle top business. That's all he ever did. He produced hundreds of millions of bottle tops wow. um, for various big uh, soda producers and da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, you know, that's not very exciting, but it made him a steady, clear income all his life. And, and it was really my conversation with him that led me to say, yeah, I'm, in, I'm now in the bottle top business. I'm in something that's it's boring. A lot of people come out and they sit with us in the car and they say, oh, this looks great. And I'd love to be doing this instead of sitting in the office. But you know as well as I do, it's, uh, we're, in the, we're just delivering the same product over and over and over again. And, and, and that's what real estate should be. Real estate should be as, as boring as possible. I think you agree again. Yeah, if it's exciting and loads of crazy stuff is happening, it's, yeah, you're, you're probably not going to be making a lot of money. And, you know, let me kind of segue on to looking at the types of houses because, you know, there's a lot of people looking at, at real estate that isn't right in their neighborhood. A lot of people don't have our luck in that they don't live in an area where you can drive half an hour and, and find loads of great deals. A lot of people are are in more expensive areas which don't cash flow very well for whatever reason, like the Bay Area or some of the big cities on the East Coast. So while you can do a lot of work from desks these days, like from a computer, and I'm the total image of a computer guy that you that you couldn't do years ago, whether it's online auctions and public records and DocuSign and training VAs to, to do administrative work for you. It's, it's really incredible what you can do and how much work you can get done and how much research you can do. 
but you, you know, it's a pretty important part missing. I mean, you, you know, you, David, and your colleagues, you're the guys on the ground double checking all the stuff that I think looks good on my computer. But you often find a lot of stuff that I can't find. I mean, what is it that what's important about looking on the ground? What do you look for when you get inside a house or what do you look for when you can't get inside a house that helps us to avoid mistakes and make smart decisions? Absolutely happy to answer that question, Colin. But let me start off by, by, by quickly uh, letting you know um, that there really are two parts to this business. And I think anybody getting into this business um, would take uh, and should take a lot of advice from what it is that you just said. There is very much a uh, an office-based, calm, cool head um, that doesn't mind doing reams and reams of data, reams and reams of searching and reams and reams of due diligence. That's just not me. You know, you and I are perfect business partners because you and I are extremely different personalities. Um, I, I, I hate when you come out on site because invariably um, you're looking at something that you're not used to looking at. And I, and I particularly dislike having to go in and do office work and work on spreadsheets and stuff like that. So I like to answer that question by first of all saying that there really is two different personality types required to run a successful real estate business in my in my mm-hmm. view. And, and don't try and do it all yourself. Anyone trying to do all of this themselves is going to run into uh, a lot of issues because you're just not good at everything. Um, from the office to the site, two very different things. Now, to answer your question, the rubber really meets the road column when when you know you you shoot me over data you go hey listen i I, you know i like to look at this house it's got this it's got that you know it's got a clean record it's 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 you know it looks like a good deal for us yeah it's got a newer roof it's on a nice street etc and that data that you give me is brilliant because that allows me then to you know very quickly just concentrate on the things that i'm concentrating on so the things that i can work on and the things that i can fix are always the home. I can put a new roof on. I can put new air conditioning in. I can, you know, landscape the property. I can put new doors, floors, baseboards, new kitchens and bathrooms, new garage door. I can make a terrible looking house into a beautiful looking house in five Mm -hmm. or six weeks. But guess what I can't change? I cannot change what the neighbors are doing or what the neighborhood is doing. So there's a lot of data that you can garner and gather from the internet but you don't know if the jukes of hazard are living next door you don't know if the next door neighbor is parking his 40 ton truck outside his house every night you don't know if you're going to have snarling attack dogs in the backyard barking through the night every night these are the questions that when you get into the ground and and, and you're looking there like these are the things that i cannot change so by and large i don't really concerned about the condition of the of the target property because you know you're going to give me the budget and i'm going to feed you back the data that's going to allow us say well this is a twenty thousand dollar renovation or this is a thirty thousand dollar renovation this one needs a new roof a new this new that Mm -hmm. that's all fine but really the the on-site due diligence that you cannot do from california you cannot do from europe you cannot even do from your desk uh, here in tampa column is getting into the, the, the visceral sense of what's going on with this house what's going on on this street and what's happening uh, potentially um, in this area in the evening time so i would say definitely the the the, the mix of the office and the site Two very very important uh, components, and there's a lot that that I remember. Once you 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 bird dogged the house, if you remember a few years ago, you bird dogged the house, and uh, you went ahead and and you bought it. I was on vacation, and I came back, and I parked outside the house, and within six seconds, I saw a large hole in the, in, in the front of the house, and I'm like, Colin. <laughs> Uh, what, what's this about the hole in the house? You're like, what hole? <laughs> you remember that well. And, and, I do. And this thing, I, I remember, that was the day I realized that we need to keep you in the office. You need to keep me out on the, out on the road, you know? I remember you had a good laugh about it with a general contractor. He said, look, check out this house. What do you see? And yeah, there's a big hole. Can you believe Colin <laughs> didn't see it? Yeah, I can, I can believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny times. It is. But it happens. And actually, it can get worse than that. I remember you or, or someone else going to see a house it actually wasn't there it had been raised 
but it was up right. the, 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 the address was up for auction, but the house wasn't there. It had literally been bulldozed or, or our house could be fire damaged and you, you're not going to see that from Google Street View. So for most of the time, you're right, it's, it's you're looking at the neighborhood and the neighbors and how that affects the house. And the house is normally needs 10 grand or 20 grand or 30 grand or 40 grand. But every now and again, you get something that's like, oh, my God, you just can't touch this house. It's just totally destroyed or structurally yeah, you know, uninhabitable. So that's right. Yeah, like the, the you know the usual. I usually just feed you back a number because let, let's look at the components that that we're looking for in a home, right? Mm. So obviously we're doing what they call bird dogging. We're we're going viewing these sometimes occupied, sometimes vacant homes, but we're not getting access to the home. We're not seeing inside the home. We we buy homes like they do on you know TV shows at HGTV, like Flip and Flop and whatever. We buy these homes what they say, sight unseen, but the, the physical exterior of the home is not sight unseen. We just haven't seen the inside. Now, what that means is we're generally, you can tell an awful lot from the exterior of a home. If yeah. it's got, you know, broken garage doors or rusted garage doors, it's overgrown, the windows are broken and open, you can pretty much rest assured that the rest of the home is going to reflect that exterior condition. However, if you drive by the home and the opposite is true you've got newer windows you, you know it's well landscaped uh, even though it's still coming up for foreclosure at that point in time you're going to make different assumptions but as again here's, here are the things that i can see i can see the landscape i can see if there's any huge trees hanging over a home because by and large if there's a extremely large trees hanging over a home we're not going to buy it we can see if the roof is good or bad we can see if it's occupied or not, which is a very, very big um, condition that we need to understand. Like, are we buying a home? Is there somebody going to be there? Is there a tenant going to be there? Is there an old tenant going to be there? And um, we can tell a lot about are the windows in good condition. And um, so all of that, we're like, we're using that, what we call bird dogging information. We feed it back to you in the office. And it's, it's, it's your information and my information that when combined gives us the self-assurance and buy homes yep i'd agree with that and look once you once you have that information on a home once you buy a house that needs to be renovated that's that's a big step and, and that's a worthwhile step and that's a step that can lead you to success but where a lot of people get tripped up and get stressed out and run over budget and it's happened to us is is you hear these horror stories about people getting messed around by contractors, you know, that the guys that have to fix up the house for you, because most people aren't physically going to install a new kitchen and new bathroom and floors and paint. And if they do, they're going to do one house a year if they're lucky, but most people are going to have to use contractors. They're going to have to find people and pay people to fix up a house on time and on budget. But that's, it's very difficult to, to get it done. Right. How do you manage uh, contractors? How do you avoid or do you avoid the horror stories that, that you hear from, from other people on other podcasts about all the terrible trouble they've had with them? Yeah, again, this, this, this harks back to our question about resilience. The bottom line is you can't avoid uh, failure in that department, Colin. You're, you're always going to run into shambolic contractors. You're always going to run into dishonest vendors. You're always going to run into and issues of that nature. So I think a lot of people, they sit behind their computers and they do real estate education courses and they do um, years and years of, 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 of podcasts and whatnot before they do even one deal. And the bottom line is, is you, you don't learn. You don't learn by podcasts and you don't learn um, from books. Uh, you learn in the real world. So you know, take for granted what I've just said there. You, you cannot avoid a certain degree of failure. You know, you can take all of the due diligence. You can look at contractors. You can look at their work. You can look up their references and so on and so forth. And they're all good steps. Absolutely no doubt about it. But finding contractors is one of the hardest things you're going to do in this business. So you're going to go through a fair few of them. You're going to go through a lot of stress. You're going to go through a lot of strain. But my, my main piece of advice in that department is – you know, in, uh, hire, hire slowly and fire quickly. That's that's basically it. 
say that again, hire <laughs> slowly and fire quickly. And what that means is, you know, you introduce yourself to somebody, you give them an idea that like, I'd, I'd like to have this house painted or I'd like to have, um, you know, this, this kitchen installed or I'd like to have this granite installed or whatever it might be. And you give them one job. And are they responsive? Are they are they responsive in their, their communication? Are they responsive in their invoicing? Are they responsive to, most importantly, are they responsive to after sale issues? And because you'll find that a lot of people, you know, they're great up front, and then you say, hey, listen, there's a problem with that. Can you go back and fix it? And they're gone. And um, are they very slow to return your call? Are very slow to go back and repair that item? So. You're going to go through just a lot of people, and I would say that that's one of the one of the the, the more difficult things you're going to experience in this business. Yep, you're right. You're right, and you know I, I agree with most of what you said. I'm probably a little bit more bookish than you, and more kind of research orientated. I think there is a place for for studying a market or studying books and listening to podcasts to do help you with your mindset, to do help you gain some knowledge. But it's only really. A small part of the story if you want to be successful you have to do stuff you literally have to take action you have to get involved and and do something with because that's how you learn you, you can't teach a kid to ride a bike by giving him a book on, on how to ride a bike you have to put him on and give him a push and becoming a real estate investor or a business owner or any kind of entrepreneur is no different. I mean, you do your, you do your preparation, you try and mitigate some risks and you make sure you have, you know, you're well-funded. Uh, but you, you have to do stuff. If you want to learn properly, learn and become experienced and become an expert, you have to do it. And, and, you know, we, we learned that the hard way. I mean, if, you know, we made a lot of mistakes and, and, but the people that are the most successful are the ones that make the most mistakes. I know people that are far more successful than myself and David that are you know, very, very wealthy people. And they'll be the first to admit that they've, they've made correspondingly expensive mistakes as well. So that's, that's yeah. just how it works. I mean, and with that in mind, what would you say? I mean, for, for me to be successful, you need, you know, you need certain habits, you need certain things in place. You need to have your goals. You need to have money saved. You need to pick a market, pick the right kind of partners and, and, you know, look at properties after that. And what, what, what's your take on things? What are what's your opinion of the key habits and, and traits of people that are successful in real estate? Yeah. Like you say, I'm a slightly contrarian to you on this is like you're you're very much uh, goal orientated and um, systemized and market selection and so on and so forth. Uh, these are all again um, great uh, great examples of, of of what you should be doing. Um, but I, I think the fundamental. I think the fundamental component of success in real estate is that you need to be extremely ambitious. You need to be ambitious and don't let the the failures, the inevitable failures and the inevitable bad days um, uh, drive you out of this business. You need to have a deep, deep ambition. You need to have a, a drive and a desire to free yourself from your job or your fear of failure or your money fears or whatever it might be. If you have that driving ambition and that driving um, clear objective, I think the rest of it about like setting goals and saving money and selecting your market and select your partner and you're talking to property managers and, you know, and then yeah. selecting hounds. I think that all just naturally falls into place if you start off with a driving ambition and, and a, a one-track mind to be successful. Yeah, you need, you need that stubbornness. You know, you need that resilience. It's no good being a very great at setting pretty goals and saving money and picking mar- Like, it's, it's hard. It's hard work and, and you can't get through it because there's a lot of bumps on the road and you can't really get through them unless you have that resilience, unless you have that just stubbornness you like you need to be a very stubborn person to succeed in real estate you need to fight a lot of people you need to push through a lot of walls you know that's right you and i have met uh hundreds of people who've done one deal in their life Mm -hmm. it's not going to change a thing about them not going to change their financial outcomes not going to change a thing like you know these kind of one hit wonders if you will um i've quite frankly I, i i think that they they just they don't they don't have the correct mindset and that correct mindset is what we've been discussing here for most of this podcast yeah you're right because you don't need to be hyper intelligent because we're not you don't need to have loads of money because we didn't uh, but you, you just need some 
you need a rough path in front of you and then you need that ambition and stubbornness and, and resilience. So, I mean, what, what advice do you have for, for people that are looking to get started? Somebody who's rubbing their hands together and saying, okay, I want to do this. I really want to do this. I want to make it happen. What, what's, what, where do they start? Get off your butt and do something. Um, I, I forever have, uh, I, as you know, I, I do a lot of client um, tours of our homes and uh, our what we call our buy box here in California or in, in, in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are Californian investors by and large who we work with. Um, and I, I meet a lot of these young ambitious engineer type people um they're very bookish they're extremely smart much smarter than i am they're doing they're they're working in careers where i wouldn't i wouldn't even get to send my resume to um but they you know and they're quoting um all of the you know the fancy language and all of all of the 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 extremely detailed buying techniques and methodologies and then i asked them how many deals have you done? And they know on paper, and they're quoting me with with, with all this very, very, um, you know, detailed information. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's amazing to me how many times they tell me that they've done no deals. So, you know, you ask me what type of advice do I have for people who get started? Get started. Just absolutely get started. Buy a house, go out, go out there and go to a real meeting learn definitely listen to some podcasts get on the phone and talk to a local investor get on the phone and find out who the local wholesalers are um, and 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 find out what it is that you don't know and don't try and do it all yourself i think that's a key if you you know maybe you'll get do your first deal yourself but don't do the work don't do the uh, don't get in there and start doing all the painting and all that because you're going to run out of energy really quickly so the advice i would have is very much get off your butt and buy a house Number two, absolutely make sure that your funding is in place and put good contractors where they need to be. And as soon as you buy that house and you start, you know, you get the right parts and the right contractors in place and start looking to buy your second house. That's that's my advice. Just just get in, get going. You're going to make lots of mistakes. Put a good team around you um, and get active. Yeah. And get your partner involved or get them supporting you because it's not very easy to go through the problems if you have a spouse who's hyper nervous or, or hyper anti real estate. So you need to you need to get him or her on board with what you want to do. I mean, you need that support. They don't need to be involved in the day to day decision making if they don't want to be. But you do need some kind of support because it's it's very hard to do it if if you're having problems with your spouse agreeing to your stuff and if you're having problems on the field as well. So get one of them, you know, organized and then you can, you'll be a lot stronger to deal with the other issues afterwards. Hey, listen, let me ask you a question, Colin. How many times have you sold a house to an investor on a Wednesday or Thursday only to receive a call on Monday morning saying, you know, my wife just won't go with it. How many times have you heard that? It happens. It happens. And it's, and yeah, it's, it's, it's often the husband as well and not just the, you know, it's, it's not normally the traditional way, but it, it happens. So you, you, you do need to do it. You do need to get your partner on board. You do need to show them your research. I mean, I think you, you basically need to prove to them that you've thought about it, that you've, you've thought it through, that you're organized, that you have a, a plan and that you have the determination because what, what a spouse doesn't want to see is that you're just kind of blindly taking risks with the family money and, and nor should you. So you should be prepared and you should do it right. And um, once you convince them that that's the case, and it might involve taking a, a trip out and meeting local people and seeing houses or going to a real estate event with them or something like that, but but get 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 that approval, uh, get that green light before you start spending the, the savings and investing savings and dealing with all the crazy problems. But it's is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. Definitely worth it, and it's it can be very rewarding. And um, so I think I think we're going to wrap up soon. This has been a really great chat david you know thanks again i mean what's let me end it on a a funny note uh, because you get a lot of craziness in real estate probably more so than most industries i suspect so what's what kind of silly crazy stuff can you recall you've you've done hundreds of houses you've seen all sorts of madness i mean what you know give me give me some give me some stories or give me some crazy things that you've seen in, in houses that you've been in charge of fixing up and selling uh, I don't know how humorous uh, these stories are going to be, but Colin, I've seen it all. I, 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 and then next week, I'll see something I haven't seen before, for sure. I've seen cat houses, dog houses, 
I've seen hoarder houses that I never, ever believed humanly possible. I've seen domestic garbage up to the ceilings in every room, every bathroom, every hallway, the living room, the entire throughout the entire kitchen with just little walkways on which you have to walk on garbage and people actually living in those homes. I've seen every everything that I think I could possibly expect to see. I've seen it all. And, you know, do I find them funny? <laughs> I don't find them all that funny. Um, Maybe it's just no, funny I've, for me because I'm looking at it on a computer. I find it fun. I mean, a, like a bit of gallows humor is, is always helpful. That's probably the way I look at it. And yeah. it's not, I mean, sometimes it works the other way around. I remember we bought a house at auction that was completely shuttered off and had a bit of an overgrown garden. But when we got into it a few weeks later, it was clean as a whistle. I mean, the house was, was immaculate. We, we barely needed to do anything to it. I mean, it was, it was just extremely rare. We literally bought a shuttered up house that was overgrown, but was renovated on the inside. And it was, you know, high fives all around because yeah. you could never tell. I remember that one. That was, uh, I literally had to sweep it off. I get, I get inside the house and I go over and, and sitting right there on the countertop was the keys to the house and a note saying to, to whom it concerns. This is how you work the alarm. This is how you work this. And, you know, this is how you work the, the water and the AC and the irrigation. Yeah, that was... Uh, that was incredible. That was that was exceptionally rare, and I enjoyed that. I think that that was of all the homes we've ever bought. I think that might be my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> your favorite, yeah, because we didn't have to do much to it. But uh, yeah, uh, I remember that. That was that was great, and, and I think we're due another one of those because that was a while ago. So fingers crossed. So look, we're we're going to wrap up. It's been a good show, and you know, hopefully, our listeners will be glad to hear that we're we're going to do more of these. So, you know, stay tuned for future shows uh, with myself and David. We're going to cover a range of different topics, like you know, how to get motivated and get into the right mindset about investing, how to source deals, you know, how to find them in a competitive market, whether dealing with auctions or wholesalers or realtors. How do you fund deals? Do you need lots of money? How do you deliver your projects on time? I mean, there's a wide range of topics that that we're going to talk about in future episodes and. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too, David. I am, yeah. And uh, just uh, I'm really looking forward to this little series that we're going to do because when uh, I think the big gap when we were trying to educate ourselves was this step-by-step guide. So I definitely look forward to doing that, Colin. I think it's going to be good fun and we'll uh, we'll definitely help our listeners a lot. All right. Well, look, thanks again, David. It's great having you and uh, chat to you soon. All right. You take care. Thanks, Colin. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you have it, folks. That's the end of Torcana Podcast 36. That was a good one, really meaty one, covered a lot of interesting topics. We dove deep into some real estate issues you don't hear that often in real estate podcasts. I hope you enjoyed that. David brings a lot to the table, David Shaw. He's, you know, he's been my business partner for 12 years now, more than 12 years, and he knows a lot about the business. He knows a lot of things I don't know, and we work well together, and I think we're going to host a bunch of podcasts together that are going to work really well, and, and who knows where it leads. So thanks as always for your support stay tuned for future episodes if you're able to leave us a quick review in your podcast app that'd be really appreciated to get the message out to a wider audience and that's it i'll be back soon with episode 37 and this is colin murphy signing out hope everybody has a great day take care this recording contains general information relating to the real estate market and it is for educational purposes only Buyers should always seek appropriate legal, tax and financial advice from suitably qualified professionals before entering into any real estate transaction. Actual returns from rental properties will always vary from person to person and deal to deal based on unique circumstances. And while we've no reason to doubt the validity of comments of any guests on our show, we do not warrant their accuracy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Torcana Real Estate Investment Show with Colin Murphy, Don't forget to hit subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play for new episodes and tips on building a rental property portfolio.